from the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution, welcome to CHQ&A, Chautauqua's flagship podcast. I'm Jordan Steves. Thank you for joining us as we embark upon a 2018 Chautauqua season of programs in the arts, education, interfaith dialogue, and recreation. Through CHQ&A, we're pleased to continue conversations that begin on stages and porches across the Chautauqua grounds for even deeper insight into the work and thought processes of some of the celebrated individuals who passed through our gates this summer. On today's episode, we feature two conversations with presenters from week two of the Chautauqua season titled American Identity. First is a discussion with James and Deborah Fallows, who took the amphitheater stage on Wednesday, July 4th, to present on their new book, Our Towns, a 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America. Then, Taina Karagal, who opened the week on Monday, July 2nd, joins us to expand upon her work as a curator at the National Portrait Gallery. But we begin with the Fallowses. For the last five years, Jim and Deb Fallows have been traveling across America in a single-engine prop airplane and reporting on the people, ideas, and organizations reshaping the country. As part of their City Makers American Futures project in partnership with the Atlantic and APM's Marketplace, the Fallowses visited smaller and medium-sized cities, meeting civic leaders, factory workers, recent immigrants, and young entrepreneurs to take the pulse and understand the prospects of places that usually draw notice only after a disaster or during a political campaign. Their new book, Our Towns, is the story of their journey and an account of a country busy remaking itself despite the challenges and paralysis of national politics. Jim is a national correspondent for The Atlantic and was editor of the U.S. News & World Report. He's author of several books himself and served as the chief White House speechwriter for Jimmy Carter for two years. Deb is a linguist who speaks six languages and the author of two books. Before her travels abroad, she was an assistant dean at Georgetown University and wrote about education, travel, work, and women in publications such as The Atlantic, National Geographic, and Newsweek. Listen on as Jim, Deb, and I speak about the idea for the project, the different things they looked for in their reporting, and the small joys they found at nearly every point during their travels. We also have time to ask a question from the audience that was cut for time during the July 4th Q&A session. And now, my conversation with Jim and Deb Fallows. Joining us in the Cohen Multimedia Studio today are James and Deborah Fallows, authors of Our Towns, a 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America. They spoke from the amphitheater stage on July 4th, the Independence Day address. Thank you both for taking time out of your Chautauqua schedules to, to be with us today. Jordan, thank, thank you. you. It's Jordan. a present, uh, a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Excellent. So I don't want to belabor um, the book because you have done, you've had a steady um, diet of junkets over the past uh, two months after the book has come out. And I'm sure if people have uh, a, a healthy media diet, they will have heard from you about it and they would have heard from you on the AMP stage and we were live streaming that. So, But I do want to talk a little bit, maybe even nuts and bolts about how it kind of came together. Um, I guess first I'd really just love to hear about where the germ of the idea to do this came from. To, to, and I should mention, you traveled around the United States to small to medium-sized cities and sort of were on the ground seeing what was going on. That's right, Jordan. We were for almost four years. Um, we had recently come back from China where we 
often spent time going around to small and medium-sized towns and, and got a tremendous amount out of that experience, just seeing what was going on outside the major cities. When we returned to the U.S. in 2009-2010, we felt like we were a bit out of touch with, with what was going on in the country, and we wanted to get our bearings again with what, what was happening. We've had a small plane for a long time now and, and had always enjoyed going around the country and were surprised when we landed in small towns that there's so much going on in these places and we've never heard about them. Uh, what's the matter with us? So it, it was a good combination of um, practicing what we had done in China and kind of answering a query we had about the U.S. when we came back from China. So that that was really the origin. Excellent. So how how did you pitch this? Uh, this became a project first of the Atlantic, the, the American yeah. Futures project. So Jim, I assume you took the lead in that. Uh, did you pitch this to your editors, and what was their response, and how did that sort of form? Yes, it was sort of a step by step, um, not knowing we were going until we got there type of process. I should say Deb mentioned we were traveling around in a small plane. I should emphasize this is really a small plane. <laughs> it's a single engine propeller plane that holds four people. It's a Cirrus SR-22, now famous in the aviation world as being the only plane on Earth with a parachute for the entire plane. So that's been uh, that's why they become, the Cirrus has become very popular. And when we started uh, kicking off this off, you know, kicking off the actual traveling uh, five years ago in the summer of 2013, the pitch to the Atlantic was stake us for a couple months of this. By a couple months, we meant the gasoline that it cost to fly the plane city to city which was about, you know, to be very practical, the plane cost maybe 80 to $90 per hour to fly mm. and cover about 200 miles. So it's a little less, um, you could argue it was cheaper than commercial airfare and also Motel 6, um, you know, lodging expenses and rental cars, and let's see what we can find. So we started doing things for the Atlantic site through the summer of 2013. And as time went on, we felt as if each little string we pulled on led to a whole bunch of different directions. And so we convinced the Atlantic to find essentially advertisers who would say, yes, we'll sponsor this for another month. We'll sponsor it for another two months. We've one time we got a six month underwriting uh, oh, wow. uh, contract. So then just just went on and on. The more, the more places we went, the more interested we were. Were you expecting a book to come out of this? Certainly not at the beginning. At the beginning, we, we didn't know what to expect, really. We were just finding our way. And as we covered the country and as we added on town after town and different geographic locations and we're finding themes and so forth, we thought after about three years or close to four years, we could go in one of two directions. We could either keep doing this for the rest of our lives because it was so interesting mm -hmm. and there were so many more places to go, or we could stop and try to make some sense of what we learned and what we saw in all these places. And, and at that point, we, we thought we'd stop. And it seemed like the natural thing to write a book because we had, we had been blogging all along the way mm -hmm. and had had lots of, of different reports and disparate ideas, but they, they seem to need to coalesce into something larger, certainly larger than a blog post <laughs> and, and larger than an article. Talk, 
Oh, go ahead, Jim. I was just going to say something about writing books. So our kids, we have two adult sons with their own families, and they've seen us writing books over the years. And their mantra is, never, ever, ever write another book because they know that it's so hard. And so we weren't planning to do, do a book at all at the beginning. But uh, as I was telling some of the um, staffers today at the, at the Daily, that when they are in their writing careers, the way you know that it's time to write a book is when you can't not do it. And so we felt as if we had to had to sort of put this together in a chronicle. And this is the first time you have written a book together. Oh, right? absolutely. And first one and... might say the last. <laughs> <laughs> we got along just fine, but but this was perhaps a unique endeavor. Yeah. For us. <laughs> yeah. T- talk to me about actually assembling the book uh, from all of these blog posts, the notes you would take at the end of every day. How did what kind of process was that like? How long did it take? We So I'll mention something about timing. We were doing most of this traveling right in the time leading up to the 2016 election, and we decided to write the book before the election. Mm-hmm. You know, we wrote it after the election, but we decided to do it before that. And so the timing ended up being interesting because we're making sort of a contrarian case about the country compared to most um, election analyses. But the process was in early 2017, right in the beginning of January, we flew our little plane from D.C., where we'd been living, down to uh, across the south of the country to Redlands, California, where Mm -hmm. I'm from. We holed up for five-plus months. Mm -hmm. We allowed ourselves that long to do the book. We had a big whiteboard uh, plotting things out. And the secret of doing a book is... If you break it into how much coal you have to shovel each day, you can get there. If you think, oh, no, I'll never finish this, then you won't. But if you think, okay, if I can get 1,500 words done today, then I'll eventually get get there. And so it was um, – it kind of wrote itself, right? That right. <laughs> yeah, and, and I would say – well, Jim and I have each written books before, mm-hmm. and – I'm not sure what Jim would say about this, but I found this the easiest of the books. I've I've only written two other books. Jim's written a whole a whole basket full, ten, eleven, um, and and this one I think partly because we had been thinking about it day by day and just living it and and as you suggested, writing notes at the end of the day, writing blog posts about a lot of these things at the end of the day. It was fresh to us in or recent to us in a in a kind of journalistic sense and in a written down sense and in, we've thought it wasn't as much like starting from a blank slate as a number of other things were so so that made it a, a more pleasant experience <laughs> and and there was something that our, our editor Dan Frank at Pantheon who I've worked with for a long time recommended he said if you want this book not to be dated, it should be strict narrative. Mm-hmm. You're presenting a view of the country at this moment in its history and not trying to give a political assessment of one kind or another because that inevitably is going to be frozen in time. So in a way, it's easier just to write kind of narrative. Here's what it was like in Charleston, West Virginia. Here's what it was like in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, as opposed to having to do one concerted book-length argument. Yeah, and and another thing that made it so the way we wrote this book was not like we sat down side by side and edit, edited what each other did. We had been re- reporting and writing independently through this whole project. Mm-hmm. We covered different kinds of topics. So that was how we also wrote the book. We um, we wrote from our own ex- each of our own experience, and we alternated 
Jim did something, I did something. Jim wrote something, I wrote something. So, um, and actually we very seldom edited each other's Because things. yours was perfect. Right, yes, of course. <laughs> there was only a tiny bit of that. So, um, so we didn't get in each other's way. Um, and... And that I'm sure I, I, I honestly I can't imagine sitting side by side to with someone and writing a meshed book together yeah. or editing each other. That that would have been the end of our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well you mentioned you both are approaching each of these cities you visit in different ways. And Deb, you look at you look at every place you land at, through the eyes of a linguist because you are. And I love you talk about you were worried when you started that you might sense a flattening of the American language just because of mass media and everyone taking in the same uh, the, the same media reports, the same kinds of um, TV shows and movies. What what were you listening for? Yes, that you're exactly right on that. I didn't I didn't know what we what I would hear. Um, I was listening for I was listening for regionalisms. I was listening for different accents. I was listening for different ways people phrase things or phrases that they choose. And in fact, at the end of it, I would say um, that that both things are true. On the one hand, there is an influence from mass media that everyone takes up and and follows, and therefore it kind of does flatten in certain ways. Everybody says things the same way or picks up the same phrases. But there is such a distinct difference region by region, uh, some stronger than others, of the way the Southern accent has always been, the way the Southerners, if you ask them a simple question like, how was today? 20 minutes later, you'll have heard a whole <laughs> lot of how today was. Um, the The flattening part is really interesting. There were a couple things that that I heard first starting in Sioux Falls, where we began this journey, that um, surprised me because I thought, why are they saying this? Often, in, in an interview or conversation, if we were asking about something that was maybe slightly edgy or took a little bit of thought, the person would sit back and say, well, let me be honest about that. Or let me, let me tell you honestly about something. Or let me be honest. And, and I thought, let me be honest. You know, you're, in, you're a South Dakotan. Aren't South Dakotans always <laughs> honest? And then I... I'm sorry I heard that because forever after that, whenever I would turn on the TV or the radio and hear pundits talking or answering questions, it seemed like everyone started with, well, let me be honest, hmm. or I'll be honest about that. And, and I'm sorry to ruin this for you, but now you will forevermore hear that as an opener in any kind of national media. And from and it's spread. It's everywhere in the country. Mm -hmm. and, and as also you've heard the evolving pronunciation of the word, word spelled O-F-T-E-N, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I say often. Mm -hmm. And Jordan, what do you say? I, I actually have found myself recently switching back and forth depending on... The audience, I feel it's really, but I, but I grew but up and I've always of said that. often, yeah. yes, uh, up until very recently. Where it's if I'm in a in polite company, it feels like you should add the T. Ah, okay. As a linguist, I will say that is a case of overcorrection, hypercorrection, <laughs> overcorrection because know. it somehow sounds uh, more highfalutin mm -hmm. or more correct. So, um, it, it's the same case with, um, using I rather than me mm. like well 
he told that to you and I, mm -hmm. rather than he told that to you and me. That that's hypercorrecting for something that seems more formal and right. more trained and educated somehow, even though it's wrong. And, and you're thinking also that the young people, like Jordan, are saying often more, right? I, I yes, think they're yes. saying often hmm. more. Um, I would you guess, young people. <laughs> and young extends to maybe I'm going to say 42. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or. Or so, anyone under 42 <laughs> will say often, yeah. and us old fogies will say often, like we always have. <laughs> That's really fascinating. <laughs> I, yeah, I, and it's funny that I have that kind of conscious thought, like, I wonder which one it is. I grew up saying off, often, but... Well, it's language change, mm -hmm. you know, right. language, and, it, and it's, I must say, it's not, neither is right nor wrong. It's just the different way people speak. Linguists have mm -hmm. to say that now. There's no prescriptive sense going on here. And you've happened onto one of the fundamental, not tensions, but issues in our marriage. Because in my role as a writer and editor, mm -hmm. part of both my, part of my job and identity has been to say, this is right as a way of writing, and this is wrong. This is better usage, this is worse. Your role as a linguist is to say, it just is. There's the ever-flowing river mm -hmm. of language use. Whatever people say, even if it's the dreaded lie and lay, is just yes. how things are going to be. Yeah. <laughs> That's I, I what I always have to look up. Ah, okay. Um, I, I don't really believe it, but linguists have argued about this. Is it a prescription? Should you be prescriptive about language or not? And um, the answer is language is what it is, mm -hmm. but, but it's I find it a little hard to embrace that notion as well. We had Corey Stamper here last week, the, she, uh, formerly of Merriam-Webster, as, as a lexicographer. So she, this is very fresh in our minds uh -huh. because we were talking about the life of the written word, and she was speaking very specifically, specifically about the life of words and language. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the, we, we've we've co we've had that covered last week, and it's fascinating to have it come up again. Um, Jim, I wanted to ask you uh, specifically about your your impression of newspapers in these small towns and cities that you you were visiting what what did you leave um what after all of this is done what is your kind of sense of the state of small town journalism like like a lot of what we're describing it is mixed in in, in the fall so one thing is true almost every place that a local media outlet of some form really matters and that can be a radio station, mm -hmm. it can be a library series, it can be a newspaper, it can be a weekly, it can be any number of things. But that really matters in the identity of a town. And so then we've, we have seen places that are, I guess I'd have to say, anomalous success stories. Uh, that, you know, not far from here in Vermont, Seven Days, which is a formerly uh, alt-weekly published in Burlington, has become de facto the newspaper of Vermont hmm. and has a very strong print-based edition that has uh, strong readership and strong uh, business and very ambitious journalism. And there are other places we found where uh, where um, alternative readers and as, uh, you know, radio stations and all the rest have, have found a way to keep going. On the other hand, it's just true that the pressures on media in general are especially acute for local media. Mm -hmm. And in California, where I'm from, two examples are on the one hand, the McClatchy chain, which runs the B newspapers like the Fresno Bee and the Sacramento Bee, has been trying really hard to, to lead with good journalism. On the other hand, my hometown paper, which was when I was a kid, the Redlands Daily Facts hmm. in Redlands, California, is now owned by this infamous chain 
the same way that's been one that's been laying off people in Denver and elsewhere that just has cut them to uh, hardly, hardly anything. And I guess the, the policy message, the observation I take from this is that a very important part of local engagement is local media. And the policy point is that the local media for the next generation really need some kind of help and support. And that the amount of money involved is not very much by the scale of other philanthropic or NGO or, or city foundation uh, enterprises that for a small amount of money compared with a museum mm. or a university or an opera company or something, locally and nationwide, there could be endowments for local reporters or programs to bring in veteran reporters to do a kind of a Peace Corps for, for local journalists, et cetera, et cetera. And we're planning to be involved with the dozens of different groups that are trying to figure out that equation because mm. the natural forces of local media are quite forbidding and they need to be um, uh, offset. Yeah. And you're right to reframe the question. I, I honed it on newspapers mm. because I'm a newspaper guy, yes. as I assume you are, and you started yeah. it that way. Did you vi did you visit any towns that didn't have newspapers at all? Uh, there was... Uh, we've thought through those. I, I think just... I can't think of one that did not have any newspaper. No, and, and they had a, covered a range. For example, tiny Eastport, Maine, mm -hmm. about fourteen hundred people, has the bi-weekly Quaddy Tides, which has actually, which is yeah, surprisingly strong. Yeah. Aho, Arizona, also tiny, has the Aho Copper News mm. from its days as a copper uh, center. The the San Bernardino, very troubled place, has the uh, San Bernardino Sun, mm -hmm. which is um, which has played a very important a very important role in sort of the civic reform of San Bernardino and trying to mobilize people. Columbus, uh, Mississippi, they had. Oh yeah, they, they had, had the uh, Commercial Dispatch, I think, which is a historic uh, newspaper that's been so, on the right side of civil rights uh, disputes. Um, the St. Mary's, Georgia. Perhaps they did not have a paper. Yeah, they had something, but it was not really, you know, no offense to any St. Mary's people listening. It didn't yeah. seem to be as engaged as some of the others. So, mm -hmm. yes, almost every place there was still a newspaper and still people who cared. And so we wanted to th we want to think about ways to to re-engender that part of, of civic culture because it matters. Sure. If you're just tuning in, we're in the Cohen Multimedia Studio here on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution. I'm Jordan Steves. Um, sitting across from me, I have the great fortune to speak with Jim and Deb Fallows, authors of Our Towns, one, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America. And we're talking we're, we're talking kind of around the book. I, I just like talking about your travels because I think that's it's fascinating and that ultimately is represented in book form here. But um, I wonder, what uh, what did you like about watching each other work as you landed and and got, went about your business separately in each of these places. I can say that, of course, you know, Deb and I um, met on a blind date in college and have been together ever since then. So I've liked everything about Deb's approach to life. <laughs> I like the way that wherever we go, she finds a place to swim. And I like her combination of fresh uh, Midwestern naivete and sophistication of a PhD. That, but I think what's been wonderful over the last, the previous book that Deb wrote, Dreaming in Chinese, about mm -hmm. our years in China, and now this one uh, that we, we did together, has it see, seen you um, at a mature stage of life 
becoming a top-ranked journalist. This is something that you had not been trained to do in the rest of your life, and suddenly you've you become by. Um, by miracle, you've become this famous journalist. Well, so that's... <laughs> yeah, you're very sweet to say that. It's become anything I've become has been osmosis from living with Jim for such a long time in journalism. And I think what one of the things that I learned and enjoyed the most is uh, Jim is a pretty small, soft-spoken guy, but his passion for things really comes out in a couple of ways that were featured during this experience. One is flying. Mm -hmm. This guy loves to fly. And I think there are two kinds of people in the world now, pilots and those who are not pilots. (laughs) Jim is a a passionate pilot. And seeing him be be completely laser-focused on the uh, task at hand of flying the airplane, that's a great thing because he's a very safe pilot. Um, is is nice because all the cares of the world, all the cares of the world melt away. There's not room for anything else, and I can see that he really enjoys that experience. The other thing that, that I have learned a lot from and admired is watching Jim as a journalist because I, I was scared to interview people hmm. or to walk into a place. The first time I walked into the library at... In Burlington, Vermont, I had this conversation with myself, like, you should go in. I can't, I'm scared to go in. But you should really just go in and ask them, so who would I ask? What would what would I ask? So sitting with Jim in a lot of interviews has helped me both learn um, the process of, of how you ask questions and the process of how you listen to answers and a few little tricks like not being afraid to let moments of silence exist, which encourages people to talk a little bit more mm-hmm. rather than trying to fill in the silence yourself. All of that has been very useful. And um, and also I've appreciated the encouragement to, a, to nudge me along in this, <laughs> in this process. Excellent. <laughs> I want, you mentioned flying and Jim's passion for it. And I, I love in the book, you talk about the, how unique it is to see America from that, your perspective, the Cirrus SR-22 flies at what, 10,000 feet or so? Two or three. Oh, 2,000. Okay. Yeah. I misread that yeah. then. Um, and so you, at you sometimes, really... Sometimes, like in Colorado, we had to get that high. Right. But usually just we try to go within two or 3,000 sure. feet of the ground. So you have, a, and you talk about this in terms of the other kinds of um, stories that have been told along these lines, like Travels with Charlie and Mike, Mark Twain's adventures. But this is this is completely unique in the, the way this kind of literature comes together. What What is it about America from the air? You know, you'll be sorry you asked me this, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep this to manageable length. People would be, people are routinely startled when they have a chance to see it, how entrancing and beautiful it is to see the United States from a couple thousand feet up, because it's high enough, if you think of like twice the height of the Empire State Building mm-hmm. or something where you can see a lot, you can usually see 40 or 50 miles in all directions, you know, depending on the clouds and, and the visibility. So you're high enough up to have this dream view of how all the things fit together and how the 
the towns are, you know, nestled into the mountains and the river valleys and the ports and all that. But you're close enough that you can see things in fine detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not precise detail, but, but Deb often talks about how you can see the yellow school bus going down the road and where it stops in these Midwestern towns. And I think especially for the United States, if you've ever taken any American history course, which I know any person listening to this broadcast uh, will have, you know the sort of the, the picture of the westward movement, westward movement of, of um, European colonization or settlement over the, the, the centuries, but you can actually see it. You can see the Cumberland Gap, where people mm-hmm. went from the, the uh, Atlantic Plains through the Appalachians and spilled on through. And you can see how they went along the rivers for the Ohio. And you can see where the sort of, it's visible where the coal seams are. The, the the hills of um, especially Pennsylvania, you can see where the coal mining was, and you go out through the Midwestern farmlands, and it gets drier and drier towards the hundredth hundredth uh, meridian. Then you, you know, head out, so it just is a way to understand the logic of the country that you can't do otherwise. And and I really like the experience of being in that plane and going somewhere. You you feel by the time you've you've arrived that you have been on journey. Um, that is very different from being in a commercial airplane. Uh, while we're in this plane, it's surprising how much is going on up in the air, mm. not just the clouds, but if you're uh, listening to the air traffic controllers, the ATCs, which we do for fun and, and also for safety in the background, which is great, you you hear about what you see going on beneath you. There's Sirius XM radio, and, and one of our, our, our one of my favorites is listening to the to the ag, ag reports, the agriculture reports. So you, you know you're finding out about hog prices over huh. Iowa, or or how the corn is doing this year, and, and it gives you this kind of fuller sense of what you're flying over, um, or road dog truckers who are calling in to talk about their worst load ever as you're watching these big trucks go back and forth on I-80 or flying low over flying into a landing in a town is is something I can experience more than Jim because he's busy landing the plane at that point but or should be um, (laughs) is on the approach to the towns when you you look down you you can get a first sense you see the whole layout, especially of a small town. Are there a lot of churches there or not? Are there trailer parks where the the mobile homes are set up on those extreme diagonals to each other? They're very easy to spot. How many swimming pools? And is it just one big pool for the town, or do a lot of people have pools in their houses above the ground or below the ground? Uh, and what are the factory parking lots looking like? Full, empty, full of weeds? Whatever it is, hmm. you can really get this this initial uh, sense that's different from driving in off a freeway um, past the Dollar General stores. Yeah. Hmm. This may be a too smart by half question, but I it struck me that the map that's on the inside cover of the book does not have state lines. Is that a purposeful decision? No, that, that is a, a an, exa- right. an exactly yes, smart an question. So so when we talked to the publishers there was two thing there were two things we wanted about this map. One is no state lines because when you're flying around here, you know, you don't you don't see them and there are for example, we've flown in this part of the country in Chautauqua a lot, you know, to Erie and to the mm-hmm. Jamestown Airport, to Chautauqua, and there are different states here, and you just don't see them. So there are no state boundaries. Also, we wanted to be sure they put 
the mountains in there, mm. sort of illustrating why we didn't go to Colorado. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this giant mountain range for a little plane like ours. Uh, that's why we were not making landings in Colorado. Well, I'm glad to know that. Yes. It, it, it did just strike me because you're so used Good. to seeing a map yeah. with lines on it. Yeah. And obviously that's not the way you experienced the country as you were flying back and forth. Anthony Bourdain's death recently has me thinking about food, and I'm wondering about the kind of food tourism you were able to do as well. And you know, and this maybe even relates to the refugee populations that you were able to to visit with. I'd say it was a mixed bag. <laughs> um, some places were terrific, and always where there were refugees, you knew there would be interesting residents or immigrants because they were there. In fact, one of the first places we landed. Um, before this journey where we thought, wow, what kind of town is this? Was Red Oak, Iowa, population very small. And we found one of the best Mexican restaurants. It was called something like Estrella de Jalisco, you know, sort of Jalisco star <laughs> and by a family from Jalisco in Mexico in, in Red Oak. We thought, hmm. So that was great. And Ajo, Arizona, the middle of the Sonoran Desert, who knew that there would be this very viable and interested agriculture effort on how to grow crops in the middle of the desert. Hmm. But the people in the Anglos in um, Ajo and the Mexican population, the Hispanic population in Ajo, worked very closely with the Native American population who were in the Sonoran Desert and teach us your ways. What are you growing? How can you grow crops here? So it, it gave, it made for a very interesting cuisine and really the start, part of the start of a local food movement, it, it seemed like every other house in that town had a little community garden in its backyard, mm -hmm. and it and the, there was an edible schoolyard, and the clinic had a had a uh, a garden, and everybody sold their things to each other at the Saturday market, so. That was good, but there were there were some definitely some food deserts. Mm. Yes, yeah. I would contrast this to Anthony Bourdain. In, yeah. uh, not, you know his, his shows were so great, but in in one way in particular, that often we were just having a day of living on jerky. Mm. Right, or... that's true. What was in the vending machine at yes. the little airport? It's funny you say that because jerky has become my def my default road trip food because it's just quick and easy and it tastes good so when you when i read that in the book i thought oh yeah, yeah. wow <laughs> maybe i'm not the only one and it's less bad for you than the other stuff right. that's available out of the vending machines so many of those cheese and peanut butter crackers yeah yeah <laughs> the, brew pubs and breweries play a big role in your travels and in the book uh, this is actually a question that didn't get asked, got cut for time um, at the program, yet, uh, at the lecture on July 4th uh, in the amphitheater here at Chautauqua. What was the best brew pub you visited? And would you talk about why they were significant in your travels? You may not be able to pick a favorite. I know. It, I, it, I it's asked true. That and I will say locally, uh, people around Chautauqua are blessed both, both by Southern Tier, which is here, which we love, and nearby Erie, mm -hmm. there's... Um, there is there are laveries and some some others there and so almost every place there is there are great brew pubs I'll have to say as sentimental favorite when we started this whole journey is in my hometown of Redlands there's one called Hangar 24 which has the uh, has the the great assets of number one being in my hometown. Uh, number two being very good, and number three being at a small airport right. called Hangar Twenty Four because it was uh, the founders were doing their initial brewing in, brewing in a, a hangar right there, and so there's a growing movement of 
brew pubs at tiny airports. And, you know, the joke is, of course, as long as you do this in the right sequence, you, right. <laughs> you, you are fine. But, Deb, what is your favorite of all? I love all my children. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we we did kind of accidentally fall into what became a tradition of after landing on a hot, long day of flying, we'd immediately go for a brew pub that we could find in town to, you know, replenish a beer and a burger was yeah. just somehow the perfect answer and the perfect American answer, you know, it was always available and it really seemed to, to meet the need of hunger and thirst after a long day in, in the plane with no air conditioning or, <laughs> yeah. or heat. Right. And, and the, the, the short version of why they play such a large part, apart from my, my enjoying them so much is, is that, uh, that craft brewing has become a serious industry. It employs hundreds of thousands of people, many times more than coal mining, for example. Hmm. And it's become a mark of the sort of the local food movement. And it's been a real sort of engine of, of urban development in places because breweries go to places where the land is cheap on the fringes of town. They attract people there and they, they sort of, they do help develop many towns. Mm -hmm. and, and the stories behind the brew pubs are also really interesting because it, it's usually millennials mm -hmm. who who want to be in that town for some reason and figure out a way to do it because it I don't think it must not take tremendous amounts of, of um, investment to start up a brew pub and you can kind of scale it up so mm -hmm. it, it seems to be an industry that works for people who want to try something entrepreneurially yeah. uh, and as a, a brewery enthusiast myself I've been struck as I've traveled around not nearly as much as you have how many are in like office parks mm. or yeah. you know it, it, or business funny. parks yeah, yeah it, it, it's it's really really funny um, one other question that came from uh, that was cut for time yesterday is to your request for small town stories you said you received responses from 49 of the 50, 50 <laughs> states should we single out the one you haven't heard from uh, so or have you since? <laughs> we, we. we we will go to this state. I will uh, I'll build suspense for for your audience here. It's a state that will be the state that didn't write in will be probably most heavily affected by climate change in mm. the fifty states. Um, it's known in national life, political life, for hanging chads. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about the state of Florida, right? But we will. But we we will have go since there. Yes, we have. Yes, people write in, yes. right? Especially when we started saying that. All yes, out. yes, yeah. and so we have lots of places to go in Florida. So we love all of our fifty states. I don't know how to ask this question real, <laughs> all that well, but I'm struck. I've been struck in my travels by the way the power of place, the way a place kind of sticks its hooks in you. And you, th I, the place I've again not nearly as well traveled as you are, but I think about places that I've been, like Asheville, North Carolina, and in and around Burlington, Vermont, where you've been, and dream about them all the time. Do you have? Do you do you sense that in your travels? And do you do you feel the hooks pulling from you? It pulling you in uh, what now? Dozens and dozens and dozens of different directions. Yes, and and you've hit on something that is is the primary kind of mover of why towns, why so much is happening in towns in a successful way, because they have often, especially the, the ones who are on the right road here, have a very strong sense of who they are as a town. What are their national assets, whether it's where they, how they're placed in geography or what kind of people live there or you know what crops there or what weather or whatever it is. Uh, know how to to really 
land on that those assets and build them into something that's important and gives you a sense of pride and you can talk about and tell the story of a town. Um, so one thing I've noticed since we've been off the road for a while, we've been to probably 50 towns and we rarely confuse them. Mm. It's, it's, you, it's very easy to look get an image or when we're talking about some single thing, oh yeah, that was in Columbus or or that was in Eastport or that was in Bend. It, somehow the the visual development of these towns mm-hmm. plus those natural assets really stick with you the same way. Huh. Huh. And I, I think one reason why this may be surprising to people is you you could have the sense of homogenization of, of the U.S. I mean, there are things that are widespread American culture. We all have hot dogs, or most of us, on the 4th of July. Uh, many people watch the Super Bowl, et cetera. But, and you might think from the, the horror of commercial airports and the sameness of big interstates that it's just one big homogenized country, and there's a layer of it that is that way, but is so distinctive place by place and how people feel about their mountains or their prairies or their water or their whatever it is. And so as Deb was saying, we really can, I can think of each one of these towns and just have, have a scene there and the people there care about, there's a certain feeling of, of this part of New York, and a certain feeling of Erie and a certain feeling of, of Lake Superior or the people we've sent there. So yeah, it's, it's, I think the place of the sense of place is much stronger, more vivid and more particular in the U S than we would have thought. Mm-hmm. And this is where, language regionalisms come back to where else would you say katie bar the door except in greenville south carolina <laughs> i mean who says that yeah everybody in green the old timers in greenville say that or calling something you know that's he's wicked smart which they actually do say oh that, that's boston maine. right or is that maine and maine yeah, yeah just mm-hmm. that upper new england right or how's your mama and them when you're asking when you're saying a greeting in new orleans <laughs> So it's it's that's the linguistic version of of what you see. Yeah. I, I love that. I want to I want to close with a, a question, um, Jim. You've said the, the kind of the essence of journalism. I'm paraphrasing is going into a new situation, looking for something to learn. You entered into this process with sort of a, a, a theory of what you were going to find you you because you, you had already yeah. seen it and so you you kind of knew that you would be able to find it in in or hoped you would be able mm-hmm. to find it in many different places what ended up surprising you so i i can say this maybe listeners won't believe this maybe you won't believe it but we genuinely did not know whether there would be a there there mm. when we went out traveling because again it was in in the fall of 2012 and early 2013 we started planning let's let's go see what's out there but we hadn't really done this before we we crisscrossed the country and we'd seen little places that were interesting but we didn't know what it'd be like if you sort of systematically said let's spend a couple weeks in Sioux Falls South Dakota which was our first real immersion and see what the story is there and i i think that that the the surprise was the density and vividness and variety of things that are happening all over the place. And it was, I think the turning point for us was the first two weeks in Sioux Falls and then Holland, Michigan of saying, good Lord, there's all this stuff happening here. And I, I very clearly remember the time we were going out to this Raven Technologies outside Sioux Falls. And they have these enormous GPS-guided tractors mm-hmm. where I, told you, I had a picture of Deb standing next to one of the wheels of them, which was way bigger than Deb was. And these are GPS-driven uh, tractors that will you know, plant, put a drop of fertilizer right exactly where the seed is. 
And this whole empire is being run out of Sioux Falls because of all the, uh, some of you didn't know either, all the sort of, um, all the aerial maps of the world from satellites are stored outside Sioux Falls. Mm -hmm. That's where a depository is. And and I had no idea of that. In Holland, we saw this manufacturing stuff. So I think I was genuinely surprised by just the, the, not the 3D-ness, but the 10D-ness of life going on Mm. in so many places that we had not paid attention to. Anything surprise you, Deb? <laughs> oh, I think I think the whole thing surprised me, and, and it was probably round about Greenville, South Carolina, which was we'd we'd visited maybe half a dozen cities before that, where it it became clear that this was much more than city by city, one-off cities doing interesting things. That we began to see a lot of patterns emerging, whether it was startups or how the politics of towns worked much better than at the national level, or um, the creativity of local schools and how they were. Um, it wasn't just a school in in Greenville, but then it became interesting schools in all these towns. Just the the accumulation, the the patterns mm-hmm. and the themes that emerged that that there were versions of many of these themes happening eventually all across the country. And as, as I was following along with your reporting and reading in the book, it's a reminder, I was reminded to it, just there are characters everywhere. The people that you encountered are so passionate and they, they're they the, they're the right people at the right time in, in their cities. Uh, yes, and, and they're of various generations. And the, what gave us hope is in many of these cities, we found people of our age, the dreaded baby boomers and older who were had been holding the cities together. But the fact there are people of your age, mm-hmm. you know, and, and younger who were deciding they're going to make uh, they were they were tired of Fresno or Charleston, West Virginia being looked down on or Mississippi being looked down on. They said, we're going to you know, this is going to be a happening place for us. So it was, um, as Deb was saying, over time, we saw patterns of lots of things happening in lots of cities where people felt as if they were not. Um, shackled by either uh, past failures there or, you know, just all the sort of visible um, past assumptions, and they were going to remake things. And one of the questions that we would ask at the beginning, usually quite near the beginning of a visit in town, was um, who who should we see in this town? Who should we visit? And who are the movers and shakers here? And there was, with maybe one exception, always always an answer, but you never knew who it was going to be. <laughs> sometimes it was a musician. Sometimes it was a teacher. Sometimes it was a sheriff's son from Arkansas. Sometimes it was a boat pilot. Um, and seeing the variety of um, American personalities out there with that kind of energy and originality, no matter who they were, gave you a sense that, hey, anybody can try this. Anybody can move and shake things. <laughs> Well, I I don't want to take up any more of your time. We could certainly go on for another hour or two. I won't hold you to that. You've got a busy Chautauqua schedule um, or, or a relaxing Chautauqua schedule, <laughs> whatever you want to make of it. Yeah. But I uh, thank you so much for your time, for weaving this mosaic for us to um, to to uh, you know indulge in and for giving us a, a lot of new places that uh, I think we want to travel to. This has been fantastic. So highly recommend um, Jim and Deb's book, Our Towns, a 100,000 mile journey into the heart of America. Jim and Deb Fellows, thank you so much. Thank Thank you, you, Jordan. Jordan. We really appreciate it.
Thanks to Jim and Deb Fallows for joining us in the Cohen Multimedia Studio today. It was a pleasure to speak with them, and I really do recommend you pick up a copy of their book, Our Towns. It it is a fascinating read and will make you fall in love with the country all over again. Next, we're excited to feature a conversation with Taina Karagal. She's the curator of painting and sculpture and of Latino art and history at the National Portrait Gallery. Taina opened Chautauqua's week of lectures on American identity on July 2nd. At the National Portrait Gallery, Taina and her colleagues tell the story of America through portraits of people who have shaped it. Listen on as we discuss what the National Portrait Gallery sets out to accomplish and her role in curating and telling the American story through the lens of art by and of Latinos. And once again, we have time to ask a great question that didn't get asked during the Q&A at Monday's lecture. And now, my conversation with Taina Karagal. Joining us in the Cohen Multimedia Studio today is Taina Karagal. She serves the National Portrait Gallery as the curator of painting and sculpture and of Latino art and history. Taina, thank you so much for taking some time out of your Chautauqua schedule to be with us today. Oh, I, I'm loving the Chautauqua schedule, um, <laughs> the, the leisure part and the intellectual part. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So you spoke in the amphitheater on Monday, July 2nd. This is July 4th week, um, a week where Chautauqua is... Uh, exploring American identity, and it's it's such an interesting way to frame the week um, to have you come in and talk about portraiture. Can, why, don't, why don't we just start there? Um, what is a portrait? What is a portrait? Well, um, you can define it very um, simply as a likeness, a representation, pictorial or statuary or photographic of a person um, and within you know within that simple definition you can have um, representations that are that are, have um, more of a an emphasis in physical likeness others that have that combine physical likeness with um, you know sort of a documentary aspect of what that person uh, does or is in life. Uh, you, you have some others that are really um, geared towards exploring the psychological, you know, the psychology of that person. So there's a full range of possibilities. And is it always just of one person? Well, you can have group portraits as mm-hmm. well, right? I mean, when we think about portraiture, we often think of just uh, of, of one individual, but you can also have a portrait of, of a collective. And um, yeah. So what is it that the National Portrait Gallery sets out to do? So the National Portrait Gallery of the Smithsonian Institution was uh, modeled after the National Portrait Gallery of England, and it was founded 50 years ago in, uh, well, really, the the, the legislation for it um, was signed in 1962, but the gallery opened its doors in 1968, so 50 years ago, to 
portray, to tell American history through portraits of people who had made significant contributions, contributions really of national impact, and also to promote the study of portraiture and of artists who devote their time and artistic practice to it. You said yesterday several times, and I'm sure you, you say this everywhere you go, that the National Portrait Gallery is not a hall of fame, which I take to mean it's not just a place to go and see everybody who did good things to move America forward. There is, there is, uh, There are ugly phases of America's history. Can you talk a little bit about what sorts of uh, of those um, ugly phases are represented in, in what's currently on display at the Portrait Gallery? Sure. Well, um, we have, for example, our, um, our exhibition, America's Presidents, which is the, the show, the exhibition, permanent exhibition that, that is the hallmark, really, of the National Portrait Gallery. People come from all over the country to see that exhibition, to learn about the presidents, to um, pay homage to, um, to the institution, really, of the presidency, and as a as a symbol of of democracy, all of these democratically elected leaders, right? But some of them have made very problem problematic decisions. Some of them have um, had things in their lives that that stand against the principles of uh, upon which this country has been founded, of course, and we explore them through the exhibition. And for example, the the um, uh, text, the label uh, next to uh, the painting of Andrew Jackson talks about the Trail of Tears and about the displacement of uh, so many Native Americans during his um, during his tenure. Excellent. Yeah, and, and you made the connection, or, or the questioner in the lecture yesterday made the connection to today's debate about whether monuments that um, that represent the Confederacy in the South should mm -hmm. still remain. Is that that's kind of the parallel you see um, in in today's debate? Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, we exist really to explore history in depth, and that involves you know, looking at uh, some ugly episodes in the face, really, and discussing them and uh, talking about why they happened, um, why and how were some, uh, let's say, like racial hierarchies established, for example, um, what form did they take, and how did they became, become institutionalized? You know, those are very important questions. and you need to set the context to explore mm -hmm. them. If you don't have all the set of characters, you know, and, and I speak about set of characters because we're at the portrait gallery and we're thinking about all these individuals who contributed to establishing those norms, well, then you will have a discussion that perhaps does not go to the kernel of, of the theme. So right now, since the end of March, um, we've had an exhibition up titled Unseen, Our Past in a New Light. Uh, it shows, it features the work of Ken Gonzalez Day and Titus Kafar. Um, and this is an exhibition that I co-curated with my colleague Asma Naim, who is also the curator of Prince Drawings and Media Arts. And um, this show explores 
precisely who is absent in in American portraiture and history? You know, what are the narratives that have been erased and omitted and um, overlooked or purposefully ignored? Ken Gonzalez Day is a conceptual photographer. He is Mexican-American and based in Los Angeles. And he has two series of works in the exhibition um, through which he uses, or yes, through which he uses photography really as, you know, what I like to call a mindful eye to examine how racial hierarchies are, have been established in, in American history and how they have taken shape and form. Um, and so in one of the series we, we show of his, um, it's titled Erased Lynchings. He takes historic photographs of lynchings. These are images that circulated as postcards, as souvenirs, at a time when lynching was a social phenomenon, really. People you know, went to see these horrific events and had a picnic next to them, to the victims. And so these images existed to um, you know, as as souvenirs of events that were tolerated, even celebrated in society, but also to permanently victimize the members of the communities of 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 the victim that was at the center of each of those images. Mm -hmm. And so, what Ken does with them is that he rephotographs them, he rephotographs these images, and he digitally, with Photoshop, removes the victim. And uh, and that shifts the focus in the photograph from the victim to the crowd and the perpetrators and those who who were there standing by, you know, looking on and just uh, not having uh, a problem really with what they were seeing or maybe being completely complacent or or participating mm. willfully mm -hmm. in the in the act. Um, the other series of works of his is titled Profiled, um, again, a title that is related to racial profiling. And with that series, um, it's also an ongoing series, just like the erased lynchings. Ken goes to museums around the world and photographs sculptures in their collection um, in order to study how racial difference has been um, has been has taken sculptural form, you know, and and also the treatment and interpretation that bodies of color and white bodies have received. Hmm. So, for example, in one part of that series, he goes um, he explores the collections of Smithsonian, and so um, he spent time at the National Portrait Gallery, at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and also at the at the National Museum of Natural History, taking photographs of their sculptures. And he juxtaposes them. And so you see on one side, you know, all of the men who have been embraced by American history and who are at the National Portrait Gallery, from President Lincoln to uh, the botanist Asa Gray to, to um, Winfield Scott, the general. And they face on the other wall individuals from Native American communities who came 
in the late 19th century and early 20th century to Washington, D.C. to negotiate uh, treaties, to present grievances of their communities. So these were diplomats mm -hmm. um, from different communities, from the Osage community, from uh, the Seneca community, from um, the Lakota Sioux. And, and, and so one group of sculptures, it's at the National Portrait Gallery. The other group of sculptures has been at the Natural History Museum. And that tells you about the status of these individuals mm -hmm. and who is remembered in history and who has been mainly sculpted for anthropological purposes, really, as, um, you know, the, these sculptures had no artistic intent, even if some artists did participate in making them, they were really made as tools for anthropological study. And so the work of Ken Gonzalez Day is paired with that of Titus Kafar, who is a, a, a wonderful artist who works at the intersection of painting and sculpture. He is very intent in in probing the tradition of American portraiture. And those who have been at its margins, and particularly the history of African Americans within that tradition. So uh, what he often does is that he appropriates traditional colonial paintings or paintings from the early American Republic. And then he intervenes them physically to reveal another side to the story. So there's, for example, this wonderful painting titled Behind the Myth of Benevolence, where he um, copies a portrait of Jefferson. And behind that portrait, he makes a portrait of equal size of an African-looking woman. And so he lets the portrait of Jefferson hang um, it's partially taken off the stretcher, and so you see part of the of the face of Jefferson is not perfectly visible to the viewer. Instead, what we see in the part that is not appropriately stretched is the woman behind, mm. who is an evocation not just of Sally Hemings, the enslaved woman with whom Jefferson fathered a number of children who he kept as enslaved people as well, but also of all the women of, um, of African descent who were victimized and sexually um, abused by the white masters. Wow. And just your descriptions are fascinating and so compelling. I, I'm, I, I want to go and see this now. And you said this exhibition, this on scene, Our Past in a New Light, is currently on display at the National Portrait Gallery. It's currently on display and it will be up until January 6th Great. of so there 2019. Is time. Yes. Excellent. So uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we're recording in the Cohen Multimedia Studio here on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution. I'm Jordan Steves. My guest today is Taina Karagal, who is the curator of painting and sculpture and of Latino art and history at the National Portrait Gallery. And she was a Chautauqua lecturer on Monday, July 2nd, 2018. Taina, 
I want to talk specifically about your position at the National Portrait Gallery, which was um, created to fill a gap that um, the that your um, super your mm-hmm. the, the leadership at the Portrait Gallery saw in its collection. Can you talk a little bit about your work specifically? Sure. Well, so I was hired in 2013 as the first curator of Latino art and history at the National Portrait Gallery. Um, the position was uh, created really um, from the realization that Latinos were foundational to the history of this country and that they were crassly underrepresented in our collections and exhibitions. And I should say um, that even though it was a National Portrait Gallery that hired me, um, the the effort to better represent people of color and and um, significant communities within the history of the United States has been has been uh, a Smithsonian wide initiative. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in the particular case of Latino art and history, the Smithsonian Latino Center has had uh, a lot to do with the hiring of curators specialized in 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 that area in across the Smithsonian Institution the, across a number of different museums so the year i came in the Smithsonian Latino Center which was an office created in the mid 1990s to address um what was um, deemed by uh, a panel of of scholars in 1994 as uh, the willful neglect of mm-hmm. the Smithsonian to address Latino history, um, had concretized into a curatorial initiative by 2011, more or less, where different curators started to be placed across different institutions. In 2013, when I I was hired by the Portrait Gallery, also the Anacostia Museum hired a curator of Latino studies. Uh, The uh, Museum of American History, where there were a couple of other curators without that title who were already doing work around Latino history and culture were also there, but there was a new one added and so on and so forth. Um, it's really a collective uh, effort that we we are doing. In your five years in this position, what have you been able to accomplish so far and what challenges have you encountered in acquiring Latino art? What have I been able to accomplish so far? Well, um, we've significantly built a collection of portraits of Latino historical figures and by uh, many of them by Latino or Latinx artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned the term Latinx because it's it's a term that is circulating a lot right now sure. in uh, everywhere in the in the media, in academia, in cultural institutions as well. Um, it refers to um, to Latino history and, and culture but that but without without referring only to the binary option mm, mm-hmm. of, of, of male or female, right. right? So it's it's a more inclusive term. And I've been I have collected something like 150 portraits um, since 2013 of a number of, of different figures from a variety of communities, which is really important. You know, a lot of people 
who are not from the Latino or Latinx community conceive of Latinos only as, uh, you know, as predominantly Mexican or Puerto Rican. And there's, there's, it's, it's a really heterogeneous group. Um, it's, it's really multicultural. So I want to make sure that all of those different cultures are represented mm -hmm. within that uh, demographic. So um, I've been collecting portraits of, of uh, people like Jaime Escalante. I mentioned yesterday the wonderful Bolivian teacher, math teacher, uh, who was um, represented in the, in, by Edward James Olmos in the film Stand and Deliver. Um, portraits of Antonia Pantoja, the educator from uh, Puerto Rico who established Aspira. Um, portraits of um, Sandra Cisneros, the wonderful author mm -hmm. of uh, Mango Street. Mm -hmm. um, quite, quite a range, really. Uh, what else? I've curated a number of exhibitions as well that address Latino history, uh, such as One Live Dolores Huerta, which took place um, in 2015 uh, to celebrate, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the grape strike in 1965 in, in California. And I've also um, made sure that, that Latino artists are included in exhibitions that have to do simply with American history, contemporary art, and culture. So, um, for example, we, we do a, an annual series titled Portraiture Now, um, I did one in 2014 that was exclusively um, comprised of Latino artists. That was, it was titled Portraiture Now, Staging the Self. Um, and then since then, I've co-curated others that have included Latino artists among a range of artists from other backgrounds mm -hmm. in the U.S. Sure. And in terms of raw numbers, when you were first hired at the time, in 2013, the gallery had a 22,000-piece collection, and only 1% represented, in some form, Latino history and cult culture. What is that number now? Um, we're at something like 2.4%. So, so, but that's still a significant shift. <laughs> it is significant. Yeah. Uh, it just takes um, a lot of effort mm -hmm. and time to move the needle on a collection of 22,000-plus right. objects. But I would say that that even if the current percentage is so minimal, because it is, you know, there's no other way of putting it really, considering that um, almost 18% of the population of the United States is Latino. And also not just that, you know, it's not because of current demographics that Latinos should be represented at the portrait gallery, or let's say not only because of that, but because Latinos are foundational to this country. Uh, as I said in my lecture yesterday, uh, the building blocks of, of Latino culture have been there since the 16th century. Um, indigenous populations um, and their mixing with um, the Spanish component um, and, and then the African diaspora, the enslaved Africans who were brought to the New World. Um, and then, and then you know, the continuous intermixing of those elements and others that, that came later. So, um, and of course, um, the 
you know, the, the, the transformation, or call it colonization, of, of parts of large swaths of land, you know, from mm -hmm. Florida to, um, to New Orleans to um, California um, during the 19th century. So it's an absolutely fascinating process. And of course, uh, in, towards the late 19th century, the, um, the occupation of, of Puerto Rico and its um, annexation as a territory of the United States. I want to talk about your family history. You and, and specifically mentioned that your mother was able to tune in to your Chautauqua lecture. You were gracious enough to allow Chautauqua to live stream your lecture out into the world. Your mother tuned in from Puerto Rico. What is your what is your family's background and what was you, your family's path and that led you to where you are now? My family's background, my family's path. Well, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a that's a that's a long loaded question. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the um, the short version is that um, there's there's a history of academics in my family. Uh, my grandmother on my paternal side was a historian and uh, a university professor. And uh, although I didn't realize this, you know, I have a, a job at the Portrait Gallery that is, that has everything to do with history, with art history and with history. They're, the two are really intertwined at the National Portrait Gallery, and that's the fascinating thing about about that place. Um, and I didn't, I didn't realize or rationalize, you know, that actually I had that background in my family. You know, mm. the people who were deeply in, interested in history and 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 academics in that discipline. My mother is a, is a professor of French at the University of Puerto Rico and French and humanities and uh, literature from the Caribbean. Um, and um, what else? Well, I have uh, parents who, you know, from the time then that I was a child really brought me to museums and exposed me to to different cultures uh, I grew up partly in in Paris in France mm. while my mom was doing her PhD this was pre-internet <laughs> in the 1980s um, and we had to move to Paris because that's where her dissertation advisor lived and it must have been a lot easier to you know, hand a chapter to um, to for her to hand him her chapters and to send them uh, by mail from Puerto Rico, right. I guess. So, <laughs> so uh, she she was the first woman I met uh, who was working on her PhD, I guess, um, and so that inspired me to 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 really aspire to higher education um, and um, you know to continue in that in that vein of work. Great. And those listening, knowing that your mother is in Puerto Rico, I, I guess I should ask what, what is, was she there during the, uh, when Hurricane Maria hit? What was her experience during that time and, and where, what is the current status of where she is? Yeah. Thank you very much for that question. Sure. Well, yeah, both of my parents and most of my family is in Puerto Rico. Um, and they were, um, in, in different parts of the island, 
my parents uh, live in in San Juan and um, luckily they were fortunate that their house did not suffer uh, any damage mm. they um, they were about four weeks or five without electricity wow. which is uh, definitely a long time but not as long as many other people mm-hmm. um, who there's still people without electricity actually uh, or some who got it you know a month ago or so um, other parts of of my family were you know I, I had a cousin for example who has uh, five children and he uh, lives in the countryside in Las Marias um, on the sort of west center of the island and we didn't have any contact for uh, eight days because he lives in a very remote area and all these you know there were there was no cell phone signal all trees were down like he had to cut cut all these trees in order to be able to get himself as and his family out of out of there and um, of course it was collective work you know he did it with you know everyone in the neighborhood got together mm-hmm. and 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 worked on that you know there's a lot there's a very strong spirit of solidarity I think between people and you know they are working together to to just make things better but it's hard because the island is uh, in a terrible economic situation and has been for some time sure. already. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm uh, glad to know that all are, all are well, um, and I'm sorry that they had to go through that, that you had to watch that from afar. I'm sure that was uh, just a really uh, a tough time for you and, and certainly for them. Um, I want to close with uh, one of the great things about uh, doing this recording after your lecture is that we have access to some of the questions that weren't asked of you during the traditional Chautauqua Q&A at the end of a lecture. And this questioner had asked, what efforts does the gallery employ to capture the attention of youth and enlighten them about the power of the gallery to help them discover their heroes? How beautiful. Well, we have a very robust education program. Um, our, our education department is just uh, fantastic and they, de- they devote a lot of efforts really to um, K to 12 and really teenagers, you know, to make them feel at home at the National Portrait Gallery, to, um, to make them feel the power of, of history. And um, one of the, of the programs I like the most happens in the summer and the National Portrait Gallery partners with schools in the DC area and um, they select something like uh, I think 15 to 20 students from high school who then come to the National Portrait Gallery and spend uh, a number of weeks, I think it's four weeks, um, studying different biographies and embedded within artworks really mm. and and then they work with um, with actors and uh, professionals in in the field of drama to create monologues that represent their favorite 
figures in history from mm. what they have seen at the National Portrait Gallery. And then they perform for everyone. They embody those figures and they, and they uh, act out their monologues for everyone, for the audience. <laughs> it's really beautiful. Um, and it's quite powerful too, because you realize just how uh, inspiring uh, someone can be that you don't feel anymore that the gender needs to correspond or the skin color, of course. And so you, you see, for example, uh, you know, you see young women representing men, men representing women. <laughs> <laughs> um, last year, there was uh, a, a, a beautiful young um, um, brown woman representing Silvia Rivera, who was a transgender activist. Uh, she was of Venezuelan and Puerto Rican descent, born in, in New York, who was ousted from her home as a teenager for being a, an effeminate boy. And so she grew up in the streets of um, Times Square when that was a really mm -hmm. dicey area mm -hmm. in the early 1970s. And um, and eventually she was she was uh, you know she was really inspired by the by uh, the radical uh, movement of the Young Lords, which was an organization modeled after the Black Panthers within the Puerto Rican community that um, aspired to empower Puerto Ricans and people of color. Um, socially and politically. So Silvia Rivera was inspired by the Young Lords, worked with them, and also by um, the Stonewall Riots. Mm -hmm. And she uh, created a, um, she created an organization to help young uh, trans people. Really, this is incredibly avant-garde for mm -hmm. its time and it's very it's very uh yeah it's very progressive and cutting edge for its time this uh, yeah at a time when the when the gay rights movement was mainly dominated by um by gay white men she really brought the concerns of people of color of trans people mm -hmm. to the forefront mm so that's really inspiring. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful note to end on. I'm so thankful that uh, you get to spend most of this week uh, at Chautauqua with your husband Mark and son Carlo. Uh, we were we're just thrilled to um, have you here and certainly to have heard your lecture Monday in the in the, in the amphitheater. Um, for those of you listening, if you want to hear Taina's lecture, you can uh, hear it and view it at online.chq.org. Thank you so much, Taina, for joining us today and for your contributions to this this week in this narrative thank you very much jordan and thanks to chautauqua for inviting me absolutely thanks to taina Carrigal and to jim and deb fellows for joining us on chq a today our producer for this program was thomas mitchell a version of this episode may also air as Chautauqua Chronicles on WRFA 107.9 FM, listener-supported radio in neighboring Jamestown, New York. 
CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution, recorded in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.